Ovest, Florenzi, eccolo il cross tagliato di testa, che da Gaudio! il magnifico, il magnifico, il magnifico rettore! Entertainment capital of the world. What a strike! What a goal! What a comeback! What a game! There are no words to describe it! It's the TC Martin Show. Les Georges, mais cette fois-ci, il n'y en a pas pour Marco Reus. Très fort devant le but! Oh, Prescription from the doctor, T.C. Martin. El largo pifio. Messi la tiene. Messi, Messi, Messi. Ahí está Iniesta. Gol. 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 Cerebro. Cerebro. Cerebro Iniesta. The doctor is now in. Glad to have you with us. Where are we at? Wednesday? Middle of the work week? Let's do the math here. Third day of the week. Wednesday. Yeah, it is. Hump day. NBA playoffs coming your way tonight. Hump day! There's the camel. The human camel. That's uh, ballpark. Camel Frank for you on the other side there. That's him. Numbchuck on the other side of the clean glass there today. You know, it's almost like there isn't even glass there. It is so crystal clear. Fantastic. Oh, Yes. We're Joyce in the studio as Germany gets the draw. Like I said, we. Yeah. We. We. We, we. France. Yes. Yeah. Yes. No France. You said the French word we for Germany getting yeah. a draw. Yeah. Ein Schwein Schwein. Although France I, also got a draw. What was the uh, final score of Germany today? You, you, you can speak it. Zwei, zwei. Zwei, zwei. How about zwei squared? There well, no, because that would be more, I think. There it better. is. All right. Love our soccer open there. It's uh, Euro 2020. Though it actually was kind of spy squared because both games were 2-2. That's true. All right. Uh, <laughs> the Group F matches today, uh, Germany and Hungary, a draw at two apiece, and then uh, France and Portugal two apiece. Germany goes on, as does France and Portugal as well. Hungary goes out, but a, a crazy game there at the end, the final 20 minutes of the Germany and uh, Hungary match. So there you go. Yes, there it is. I heard it there. And, and this is almost going to be a very embarrassing moment for Germany because they are on the verge, as we've talked about before. Yogi Lowe, their coach, Selavi gone. They're on their home pitch. Not only they've played all three games in this group stage in Germany, but they're playing in Munich, at Bayern Munich, the most popular pitch that all these players know so well. And they almost went out of the of the Euro Cup today, and that would have been a total embarrassment. In a downpour. In a downpour. I mean, that rain was coming. I, I don't know about you, but I was watching that rain thinking, wow, there would be massive flash floods out here if it rained like that in this city. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, it's funny, and when they played, what, four days earlier, I mean, it was 92 degrees there. Sun is, is batting down on them, and uh, they had to take a cooling break. At the 20-minute mark of each half. I've never, well, I shouldn't say never. Rarely do you see a soccer match take a cooling break. 
Yeah, it, it, it is a little bit weird, but it shows how much the weather can change. too. But the other thing I was wondering is, like, with that rain there, I was thinking, is there any lightning in there? Are they Because they stop so many events, yes. certainly in this country, yes. when it's raining because of the lightning. Mm. It, 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 I didn't hear any talk about thinking about, are we going to have to cancel it or postpone it or something? And, and that's one thing. Like, a lot of people kind of poke fun at soccer, and they don't like it. Or they, they don't understand it. They think it's boring. There's not a scoring in that. But they play in any elements. Yes, yes. And it's funny you say that because I was thinking that same thing, but it just goes to show you how Americanized we are here. Because soccer, they, they don't stop it. Uh, you know, lightning or whatever. You never hear, okay, we're going to take a lightning delay. And let's face it, we never ever would have thought about that in football as well, too. Um, Nice, I like that. CCR, you know, the rain. I know where you're going with that, yeah. I, I'm just trying to clarify. Our listeners probably thought they might have had two stations on at the same time or something. They're hearing us talk about soccer and then you faintly playing a song. So we, I thought it we was do also- have to just describe it to our listeners so they don't, they don't start messing with their dials. By the way, John Fogarty is doing another residency at the wind coming up as we, well. So, yeah, we so you can that, see yeah. this live. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so uh, downpour in Munich uh, today. But, yeah, soccer, they don't mess around with that. It doesn't matter. Rain, sleet, snow, blizzard, lightning. Th- it doesn't matter. They not, play. Yeah, Not that they play a lot of soccer in snow, but if they did, they would keep on playing. But, and i got to tell you, I played in a men's league years ago back in uh, Algonquin, Illinois, amongst all the towns back there. There's a suburbs about 45 miles northwest of Chicago. There was, But nowhere like, near Highwood. Yeah, but. Not the no, nice no, no, part. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> the no, other it, direction. It was a nice. There's a I lot know, of nice parts in Chicago, I'm okay? Teasing. You know, just because they don't have a froggies doesn't mean there's not a nice part. But no, but I used to love playing when it was raining in the bad condition, that kind of stuff. Because a lot of people kind of tense up and they don't like it. And they're a little yeah. bit more gingerly out there. I was like, hell, this is great. Yeah. I'm sli- it's, it's like the whole field is a gigantic slip and slide. Well, that's you. I mean, you're a pig and slop. You know, I mean, you're, you're, you're one of those bulldog type of guys. You know, you want to muddy it up. That's you. Well, plus, when you slide like five yards into somebody, then you can act like it wasn't intentional when you take them out. I mean, reminder, (laughs) this is coming from a guy who pulled out his own tooth with a steak knife. I mean, make it. He well, just, I cut it out. I cut you it cut out, cut out whatever, yes. you know. And then, and then you know, t- when we did our commercials, you actually tied it up with uh, some string around a doorknob, too. So, I mean, come on. You're, mm-hmm. you're one of those rough and tumble guys. Well, I used to be. I mean, there's a reason that my friends called me kamikaze. They yeah. thought I was insane. Yeah, Dr. <laughs> Weinman wants you to come see him. Okay, don't take dental practice into your own hands. I tried to tell you that before. Save the money. <laughs> and when I did have to get my wisdom tooth out, said no thanks to the Novocaine. It cost more money. <laughs> All right, uh, Vegas Golden Knights, wow. That's all we have to say is wow. Last night, the 4-1 loss to the Montreal Canadiens, and now all of a sudden, the Vegas Golden Knights, once a $5 favorite to win this series before Game 1, after they won Game 1, they were a minus 1,100 favorite. We talked to Matt Holt about that yesterday. Scott Spritzer is going to join us today, so we'll get his thoughts regarding the rest of the series, not only the NHL playoffs, but the NBA as well, too. Timothy Bradley is going to join us as we preview the Lomachenko-Nakatani fight this Saturday. That will be another good one at the Virgin Hotel and Casinos, and we will be giving away tickets uh, the next couple days for that as well, too. So hang tight. A couple great guests, uh, but we do start talking about the Knights. Uh, The 4-1 loss last night. Uh, Montreal jumped out to another early lead. They scored first. And we talked about how important. I know every team wants to score that first goal, but Montreal is one of the best front-running teams I've ever seen. When they come from behind, they have to play a different style. When they have the lead and they clamp it down, wow, they are hard to beat. 
So we're at the game last night, and you know when this first goal happened, I mean, we're all looking at each other like, okay, here we go again. Let's look at these stats. They bear itself out here. Montreal nine and two in these playoffs when they score first, and then they had the one nothing lead. We go to the second period. They tack. Two more goals on. It becomes 3 nothing at that point in time. And after the second goal, we go, okay, let's uh, check the stats here again. Well, yeah, Montreal 9-0 during these playoffs, undefeated when they scored two goals. And then when they got that third one, it just felt like this thing is over. Now, let's go back to that first goal. After the Canadians got that first goal, I don't know if you noticed it, but what I noticed was the body language of the Golden Knights. Specifically, of course, Mark andre Fleury for giving up a goal because, you know, in his head, he's thinking like, oh, no, I get the start. we got all this controversy brewing again, and I'm on my home ice. I, have to, I give up the first goal. So here we go again. And, of course, that coming off the Game 3 gaffe uh, that he made. He was benched for Game 4. Call it because of the gaffe. Call it for rest, whatever you want. But the bottom line is you knew when that goal came up that, that he gave up, and then so the second and third after that, that the talk was going to be all pointed at Peter DeBoer, Marc-Andre Fleury, and Robin Leonard in the background. We'll get to that in a minute. But the body language from all of the Golden Knights when they were down, they, it just seemed like to me that, okay, one goal is nothing. You're the higher seed. You have home ice. You've overcome one, two-goal deficits before. But I don't know about you, I never got the feeling that they got overgiven of that first goal. And then when it became 2 nothing and certainly 3 nothing, it was over. No, I certainly agree with you, 3 nothing. But even after the first goal, like you mentioned, and the thing is, Fleury made a real nice save on the first shot. Yeah. But then he was out of position for making the save. Uh, Kotkaniemi comes in, wide open net. And kind of every one of their goals was wide open. I know one was, uh, you know, the, the the second one from Stahl was a nice pass, but he had a lot of net to shoot at. They're just great counter punchers. You know, they don't go aggressively. They keep the other team out of their comfort zone. I, I don't think they've had any real goals necessarily where they're controlling the puck in their zone. Maybe the one power play goal in the first game that they lost, the best game that Vegas played. But they just... They muddy up the other stuff, and they get breakaways. They get out-of-man rushes. They get ways. I mean, again, Fleury made the initial save. That's what a goalie's supposed to do. But Montreal, and I hate when people say this, but I'm allowed to say it, they look hungrier. They look more aggressive. They, you know, they're fast. And, you know, I heard some people saying last night, well, you know, Vegas looked tired. Why are they tired? I mean, Stevenson was flying all over the place, and I know he missed a couple games, but you're on home ice in a pivotal game five. You know, against a team that you should have probably already beaten. And now if you want to be realistic about it, with that win last night, that could have easily been Montreal wrapping up this series because they outplayed them by a lot the game before that. We had talked about how is Montreal going to come out because they just played the best game they possibly can and they didn't win it. I don't think they looked at it like that. They looked at it and said, we should have won that game. We played that again. We're going to win. They were on fire last night. They were flying all over the place. They were making their odd man rushes. They outplayed Vegas pretty much in every facet of the game last night. They were all business, is what they were. And here's, and I don't know if it's a telling sign or, or not, because sometimes I get into the whole locker room coach stuff and, and you know all that. But when I saw the Golden Knights come out last night, uh, you know, it took the ice for the first time. They came on out. Okay, 
Most of the times, the visiting team usually will take that ice first or they'll kind of do it simultaneously. I noticed that Montreal waited for the, the Golden Knights to take the ice, go through all that stuff, and didn't even bother coming out until Bruce was in, involved in, in announcing the starting lineups. And I guarantee you that was a ploy on Montreal. Said we don't want to hang around for all this hype. We want to come in, do a quick little, you know, uh, you know, yeah, get our skating two, two, legs, yeah, yeah, just for real quick, and get to the bench national. Anthem. I thought, okay, they might miss the national anthem here, you know, because they were all business. They didn't want to get caught up in anything else, and they were there, and you could just see the focus on them from that moment on. That's what I noticed, and again. You talk about the look, the pass in the eye test, Montreal. The numbers bear all that. Again, they outhit the Knights, didn't really outshoot them like they did, uh, you know, I think Golden Knights, you know, with 28 27, whatever that was, but they definitely outhit them again. And we saw that in games three and four in Montreal. They are the more physical teams. And, you know, I've said this a bunch of times before the series started. You know, we talk about, you know, Colorado, we talk about some of these other teams. And I keep going back to, I think, Montreal is going to play like Minnesota. And the Golden Knights have had this problem with the Wild. Even though, I mean, they split series the last you know couple seasons with them, but there were always these battles, and we were always talking about, man, Minnesota, their physical nature of play really bothers the Golden Knights. I think Montreal is going to be like that. Now, after five games, I'm thinking Montreal is better at it than Minnesota. And they're proving that they're, they're one game away from eliminating the Knights, the higher seed. And again, here we go. Montreal, throw it out the window. It's hockey. But they're lucky. Everyone says they were, they're lucky to even be in the postseason, lucky to be in the playoffs. They were gifted in here because of the crappy division they were in. And then they had, you know, win three in a row to beat Toronto and knock off the top seed out there in Canada. And then they swept Winnipeg. Bottom line is, you ride a hot go- goalie. And if you're playing with confidence, which they are, it could take you all the way. Yeah, definitely. And, and we talk about riding the hot goalie, and Carey Price has certainly been that. Uh, Montreal is much better than I thought they were. I thought that they were there. I mean, let's, let's face it. They were the last team in the playoffs. They had the worst record of any team in the playoffs. But they got hot at a good time. I think they're starting to believe in themselves. Last night, I think they had three guys under 21 score a goal. That's the first time that that's happened for any team since 2008. So their youngsters are coming through. Their veteran players like Stahl and Gallagher and other guys, they're playing well for them. And, you know, I, I heard this last night, and I thought, that's an interesting point. In this season where nobody's had to travel because of division, Vegas never went outside of their comfort zone. You know, the other t- all three divisions in the United States didn't. The one division that had to travel across time zones all year long was the Canadian division. And you start to wonder, was that an advantage to them that they don't care about flying cross countries because they've flown to Calgary and Edmonton yeah, and other places, point. you know, and I'm, and I was thinking about that and I thought that's actually an interesting aspect because, you know, everybody's talking about, well, there hasn't been travel all year. And now for the first time they're traveling against the, the obviously the U S Canadian border, but they're traveling time zones. Vegas isn't, okay, you, you go to Colorado, you're in a mountain time zone. Ooh, that's, that's not that big a deal. Quick flight. <laughs> but Montreal is the only team left in the playoffs that has consistently had to travel all year long. That seems like it's paying dividends. Yeah, obviously sweeping Winnipeg. And I think it also shows that, my, and I'm probably guilty of this myself, we put too much into, well, Shifley was hurt and Stasny wasn't his best, so that's why they, 
Well, they did sweep them, mm-hmm. you know, and Connor Hellebuck's a pretty good goalie, too. It's not like Carey Price is that much above him because Hellebuck's also a good player. I just, I guess I didn't see enough of Montreal this year. I didn't nearly well, well, give yeah, them enough credit. Did. I mean, we're not going to sit there and, and well, no, no, try, to, try to find them on, on TV as no, well. No, either, I mean, you know? I, I saw some other games, but I didn't, you yeah. know, I I, zo- I zeroed in more when I saw Tampa Bay or Carolina yeah. or some of the other teams that I thought were the more relevant. Yeah, right. You know, but I, I got to give it up to Montreal. And the other thing we talked about when their coach got COVID and how is that going to affect him? Luke Richardson's done a great job behind the bench for them. And it kind of reminds me of season one in the finals a little bit. And this isn't a total knock on Pete DeBoer. I think they're being outcoached. Yeah. Montreal's got a better game plan. And Vegas, and DeBoer's actually tried to do, he tried to shift lanes, lines last night. He's tried to do some things. But every move that he tries to make, it seems like Montreal has the counter for it. Well, bottom line is they're playing better defense, too. And they're playing smothering They're just playing better all-around all hockey. All around. And especially yeah. when they have the lead. Yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah, And the, the numbers bear it again. I mean, they score two goals. They're 9-0. and oh. <laughs> You know, score the first goal, 9-2. and two. And it does, it does make a difference when you're used to playing that way. You j- it just breeds confidence. And, and after playing a team like Colorado who's so wide open and you could come back from a two-goal deficit or something – and all of a sudden you're playing a team that, like you said, if you give up two goals, you lose? Yeah. That's a lot of again, pressure on the and, goaltender. And, and, and no excuse, though, because the Knights, and we, we talk about Minnesota, how many times they face them. Other teams play like that as well, too, that they faced during the course of this year. And, again, no one expected Montreal to play this well. But, again, you get on a roll, you're playing with confidence, and that's what the Montreal Canadiens are doing right now. They've got a lot of history on their side, too. I know it's been since 1993. Since, uh, last Canadian went, team. Yeah, last Canadian Not team. just Montreal, but yeah. the last Canadian team, yeah. period. But, um, yeah, can you imagine if they had you know, 17,000, 18,000 fans you know, back at the Bell Center there? I mean, how crazy. We, we always talk about how electric it is at T-Mobile. Well, the Bell Center is crazy when they've got eighteen thousand fans too. And, oh, absolutely, it know. is, and they're not any cl- we're close to that yet. But yeah, you know, thirty five hundred. Will yeah. they have that in the finals? I mean, is that a possibility? Will T.J. Reeves cross the border if Tampa Bay has a? How upset is he going to be that his trip to Vegas will not be to see Stanley Cup oh, Finals don't, games? Wait, don't bring him up, okay? Because again, he, he, last night. Well, this you're going to hear from him tonight. I, yeah, heard from him this morning already. I just like leave me alone with this. Texting me left and right during the course of the game last night. I, I'm here. At Watching the game, covering the game, you know, just relax, okay? We'll see how it all plays out, all right? Gee, they got to make reservations for the guy, got to make dinner plans, and then he wants to talk hockey. And again, he's getting ahead of himself about, okay, so game one is going to be this night. Oh, breaking news. Um, uh, the Tampa people are saying that they're going to need a full media day, so now it's going to be game one would be Sunday, and this and that. But hold on. I mean, this Montreal-Vegas series isn't even close to being over yet, okay? Uh, by, by the way, Relax. By the way, although they look sensational, the last game ain't nothing. It's still only one game. Right. It, it's not out of the realm of possibility right. that Barry Trotz can cook something up and find a way to still win that series. Right. All right. Uh, Mark-Andre Floyd. Mark-Andre <laughs> Floyd. Not good last night. How much of an effect? The end of Game 3. Does that have on him? He gets... Call it what you want. I don't care. Rest or whatever. He was relegated to the bench. You know how I feel that if he doesn't make that gaffe, he's playing. There's no rest needed. Effect on him last night. Game three. Was last night game three hangover? 
I don't think so. I think it was just Montreal had a great game plan and they he found ways sharp. to beat him. He wasn't sharp, he but he wasn't three. horrible. He, he did give up three, but they were on rebounds. But he gave up three in two periods. He Less than up. two periods, right? Okay. Will you let me say it now? I know it's okay. right. Just no, no, I'm just it. saying. I'm just saying. I'm not it, disagreeing. I, I don't think Mark Andre Fleur was horrible. I thought the defense in front of him was horrible. Yeah. The, the, the first goal, a rebound goal where the defenseman did not get back there to help him out, and caught Kaniemi. <laughs> Always seem to have a little bit of problem with that, but when he came in, it was a wide I think, open I think net. We all would. You know, the the the, the, the shot by Stall, wide open in the crease, the, the the goal by Caulfield. Again, good young good young player, but he comes in and he's basically all alone. They're getting wide open breakaways and things. Now, Mark Andre Fleury also made some sensational saves last night. That thing could have been five or six to nothing after two periods of play. So yeah, he wasn't great last night, but I don't think they lost because of him. And have you ever seen, because I've seen times when teams have struggled with the power play, it's almost like when Montreal gets a penalty called against them, although the crowd goes crazy, you almost see the Vegas bench, you're talking about body language, where they're almost going like, oh, damn. It kills their momentum. Yeah. Montreal is so, like when they pulled <laughs> Flurry at the end of that game. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking... They can't do nothing five on four. What is six on five going to do? And I know you have to try that, but I didn't think for one second they were getting a goal in that situation. Montreal has one of the best penalty kills. They, I believe now they haven't given up a power play goal in like the last 12 games or something. I mean, it's just, it, obviously we know Vegas hasn't gotten one, but they've been stupid good. I've never seen a power play that actually takes away momentum on a consistent basis. Yeah, no, great penalty kills, no doubt about it. And, you know, unfortunately, it's just the nature of the way it is. I mean, the goalie is going to get uh, the blame. He's going to get the majority of the blame. And like you said earlier, there were, and the reason why I say about Flurry, of course, he's I – mean, and I hate doing the blame game. It's, it's not one guy. There's no question about it. But like you said – he had some wide open nets. Oh, they were totally okay, wide and open. That, I mean, and that's on the goalie. They were that's like, not on the they, defense in front of you. That's on the goalie. You know, well, like the first one, I, I don't think it is on the goalie because the goalie's job is to make the initial save, and the defense is supposed right. to clear it out. When the defense isn't fast enough and they're beat yeah. down the ice, then it's not on him. But again, he, when you're you know, out of position, but, yeah. but again, Robin Leonard's a different kind of goalie. He wouldn't be in that position because he doesn't make those sprawling, spectacular saves where he's going out of the crease. A lot of the great saves that Mark Andre Fleury makes that are highlight reel stuff are because he's out of position, but he has the athleticism to come back. But when you don't have the athletic, it's like the poke check that he does. When he makes that poke check, the crowd goes crazy, and it's a thing of beauty. But when you miss it, it's wide open net, and it's a tap-in. And then you also have situations like Stone when he had the wide open goal last night, and he shoots it wide. He doesn't even put it on net. And I think Carey Price is totally in the head of the Vegas Golden Knights players. Everybody's talking about, oh, they can't hit the net. Uh, okay, they outshot them 27-26 last night, so it was uh, pretty right. much that even there. But I think Vegas had like 56 shot attempts. They're either shooting it right into Carey Price's chest, right. or they're trying to be too perfect because they're thinking, this guy's stopping everything. But they're not missing by inches or even... Last night, they weren't even hitting posts and crossbars. They're missing by feet yeah. because they're trying to be too good. And that's got to be that Carey Price is in their head. If we're not perfect, we can't beat them. You can't try to be perfect every time. Throw it at them. Try to get a rebound or something. Unfortunately for the Vegas Golden Knights last night, when they tried that, Carey Price just swallowed it up. 
Marc-Andre Fleury didn't. And that's where I'll give you the uh, that I'll agree with you that he wasn't sensational last night. He was giving up rebounds, and when you do that, that's yeah. a dangerous place yeah. to be. And, and I'll say this as well, too. Because, again, my phone was blowing up after, you know, when it was 2 nothing, this and that. Should have started Leonard. Should have started this guy over here across from us. You know, should have started Panda. Everybody's, you know, I'm not going to go with that. I'm not gonna, because you don't know what it would be like. You don't know. We have no idea. And, again, these guys are very, very similar. I mean, their body types are different. Their styles are a little bit different. But by, we have seen Robin, Lever, Robin Leonard give up seven goals. And I know you can say aberration, whatever, but... We've seen him give up three, four goals. We've seen Flurry do it as well, too. We saw Flurry go through this elongated period where he never gave up more than two for, you know, how many games? 20, 20 yeah. something games, you know? So every goal he has no, ebbs and flows. It's right. a roller coaster. No guarantee. And cold it, wouldn't you agree? No guarantee Leonard starts that there's no different result. We don't know. But here's the bottom line, okay? We got a full blown controversy. You can't deny it and you can't ignore it. Anybody that wants, I mean, it's right in front of you. It's been right in front of us for two seasons now, but now it's full blown controversy. You got people that are saying, yeah, Leonard's got to start. Well, stick with Flory. At this point right now, when you're down to your final game, Peter DeBoer, I mean, he's not going to say nothing, but he's got a, a major decision to make here. And I don't know how he's going to make it, but. At this point in time, how do you not go to Robin Leonard? Because the last game you played in that building in Montreal, Robin Leonard was the winning goalie, whether you want to give him credit or not, but a lot of people sure did. Well, he was the reason they was. won that game. Right? Okay. He, he, without a doubt, okay. was the reason so they won that game. So then there's no question in your mind that he is between the pipes for game six. I don't see how he's not. Right. And, and, and right. how you said Peter DeBoer's got a tough I don't even think it's a tough decision. I think it's Robin Leonard, and that's it. And then, depending on how he plays, well, you have to win the game, obviously. Then the decision is game seven. Well, I'm saying tough decision for him because he makes it like it is a tough decision because well he's, because he's so secretive he's so secretive yeah, he, and exactly yeah he adds the drama right. to it instead of right. just coming right out and saying look right. Mark Andre Fleury's played great for us. Robin Leonard played great the last game. So simple. He was just up there. He knows how to win the yeah. game. You know, we're, we're going with Panda tomorrow. Right. But Fleury's going to be ready if we need him. Right. Where's the, where's the Golden Knights offense? I mean, that's what we're talking about. And, and again, a lot of people are ragging on Mark Stone right now. Deservedly so? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's the yeah. captain of the team. He's been the leader all season long. He hasn't been getting it done. Stevenson came back in the lineup last night. I thought that was going to be a big boost to that line. Mm-hmm. And I know some people are going, well, Pacioretty finally got a goal. You got a goal from their top from their top six. He got that goal because he missed the first shot. Now, granted, the second shot was a beautiful shot. If he doesn't miss the first one, I'm pretty sure Carey Price swallows it up because he whiffed on it. And Price went down, and then he was looking around like, where's the puck? And it was still on Pacioretty's stick. By missing, by Pacioretty making a gaffe, the gaffe actually paid off for him. Right. But, yeah, I mean, the offense has not been good. They're still getting nothing from the second line out there. Alex Tuck is flying all over the ice, but he can't even put the puck on net. And when he does, it's right into the center of Carey Price in his chest or whatever. So I, I think Carey Price is in their head right now. And, again, Montreal isn't winning the five-on-five battles with puck possession and keeping it in the zone and circling around. They don't have to. They're going, we're going to wait for Vegas to make a turnover. We're going to get an odd man rush, and that's how we're going to score. And that's how they've done it this whole series. And they do it with alarming success. Yeah, and again, it's just funny how things can change so quickly. Two weeks ago, Mark Stone, Jonathan Marshall, that whole, all, all the Vegas goal scorers, 
You know, greatest team of all time. Yeah, I mean, it's just <laughs> it, it's funny. The, the team captain. I mean, three even going back two, three, four weeks ago, and now all of a sudden, wow! I mean, people have got their their lances out there. I and, mean, and how about Suzuki last night with the empty net goal? And he hasn't. That's his first goal in this series. It's mm-hmm. I believe his fifth in the right. series. But he's had some assists and he's actually played well. Yeah. But doing the little thing with the crowd of doing the little bird flop and that, and kind of like hey. could have had mean. Yeah. Now you got to give up something to get a guy like Patcheretti, but. Um, I don't know about you. I like Nick Suzuki. I kind of root again, for the that, kid. That's human nature. I mean, oh, it, absolutely, it, yeah, it is. Doesn't I, matter. He's not going to understand. I mean, no. bottom line is, hey, I mean, you're, he's you're like 21 years you're, old you're, or something. You're, you're basically saying, okay, we're giving up on you. Plain and simple. Yeah, you could get a guy like like Patch already, but you know, as a player, you feel like, hey, I'm just as good as him, or I, I could be just as good as him. Don't give up on me. And that, and so that's human nature, you know. But and you're not going to play "Don't Give Up on Me, Baby," are you? Because no. that's another one of those no. sappy songs yeah. that. I don't like sappy songs. Sax might be listening to on his seventies at seven yeah, or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not a big sappy guy anyway. I mean, he, like you said, when he, well, you no, know, it just happened to be that it was on last yesterday. Yeah, right, with the... Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, that went okay. Let me go to sixties on six and see if I can get some Steppenwolf. So get there a little go. Hendrix. There you go. <laughs> All right, Timothy Bradley is going to join us, the five-time champ, ESPN boxing commentator. He's been spending a lot of time here the uh, last few weeks here in Vegas. Top-ranked boxing, ESPN, Lomachenko, The Matrix. He is back. We look forward to talking to Tim Bradley. We'll break down that fight and uh, a whole lot more. Scott Spritzer will join us next hour as well, too. Glad to have you with us on Hump Day, T.C. Martin Show Edition. Hi, this is Lennox Lewis, last undisputed heavyweight champion of the world, and you're listening to the T.C. Martin Show. More boxing, more boxing, and more boxing. We're coming uh, to the end of the June series, I guess, right? Back-to-back-to-back weeks at the Virgin Hotels here in Las Vegas. ESPN top-ranked boxing. And uh, we've seen some good ones the past couple weeks. Shakur Stevenson. Then we had the monster last Saturday night in a way. That was fantastic. And this week it is Vasily Lomachenko against uh, Matsuyoshi Nakatani. And uh, looking forward to this bout. And, of course, the man who is on the broadcast for all of this, ESPN top-ranked boxing, the five-time champ himself, my man, Tim Bradley Jr. What's up, my man? TC, what up, baby? What's going down, man? I heard you mention like Shakur and and Inouye and all those guys. So we had that first week Shakur. We had a little sleeper, yeah, a little sleeper yeah. with Shakur. <laughs> and then we had Inouye. It was a different type of sleeping. It was the sleeping to the body, the liver shot. This week we got the Matrix returning. Neo himself, Lomachenko facing Nakatani. Man, it's going to be a great, exciting fight. I don't know what to expect. In this fight, um, but I can tell you this, Lomachenko. I'm excited that he's back. This these type of fighters. This is. I mean, I think this is his what third loss in his entire career. Correct. He yeah. lost once in the amateurs. Right. These type of men, they come back with vengeance. They come back with hunger. They come back better than they were before. Um, I think that Lomachenko is going to be coming in this fight to prove a point. Uh, he's taking on a tough guy in Nakatani, who's a big, strong, relentless fighter. We've seen that with him when he faced Verdejo. We saw that when he faced uh, Lopez back back when Lopez wasn't a champion, and he gave him fits. So, uh, good fight for a great fight, honestly, for uh, Lomachenko, the major coming back. Yeah, looking forward to it. One of my favorites, Tim. And uh, before we start breaking this fight down, let's talk a little bit about the monster. 
All right, because okay. definitely billed as advertised. And I know a lot of people hadn't seen him uh, before last Saturday night, especially here in, in Las Vegas, especially with crowds uh, you know, coming in. But the body shots, like you said, just tremendous. Uh, he is uh, the monster you know, for a reason. And uh, we, we did get the early stoppage. Uh, g- give, me your, give me your thoughts uh, on that. Was that just a, you know opponent that just you know, was not ready for him? Or did he just come in with, with uh, uh, drilling on his mind? No, no. I mean, the, the opponent, you got to give him credit. Uh, Des Marines uh, coming, I believe, in a fight with a, a nine-fight winning streak. Right. Uh, and a majority of those fights were by knockout. But, you know, um, Des Marines is not a bad fighter. It's just the fact that there's levels to this game. Um, I think, in a way, what he showed was that he's the total package, honestly. Uh, Des Marines came out, tried to, you know, stink it up a bit and was moving around a lot and was not trying to stand in front of him. But you saw how quickly, in a way, adjusted. Um, I don't know if you really understand. Oh, I wouldn't say you because you, <laughs> you're really good. But the people at home is that, you know, when you have a guy that doesn't want to stand there and fight you and you got to look for him and he's playing defense, it's really hard to really figure out a way to get him up out of there. He's basically in survival mode. And that was Des Marinas from the opening bell. He was in survival mode. He was scared. He was timid. And when I saw that, I knew the fight was going to end shortly. But the way that, in a way, set up the shot, was was fantastic. He cuts off the ring. I think he's the best small ga- small man with the best feet. Yeah. His feet and positioning is fantastic. Uh, you see the spout, the power, the explosiveness that he brings into the ring. He's exciting to watch, you know. And he's offensive. He, he's an offensive type of guy. He's not a defensive type of guy like Floyd was, right. you know, and many others that came before. He's an offensive guy. So you know, guys like Lomachenko, guys like Inouye. Uh, guys like Earl Spence and Terrence Bud Crawford and so on and so forth. These guys is what attracts people to boxing. They're offensive-minded fighters that incorporate defense, of course, but, you know, they're explosive. They have great punching power, speed, and, you know, coordination to go along with that, man. This kid is an athlete. He's a beast. He is the freaking monster. He is. <laughs> and if I was a small guy, I would hate to fight this guy. <laughs> you know, I got going to lie. I got a chance to talk to Nonito Donaire, uh, you know, before uh, you know the the fight took place on Saturday night there, and you know he was there. I don't know if you got a chance to speak with him as well too. But again, you know, when they fought in Japan, I mean, that was a great fight. And then Nonito comes yeah. off with his big victory, his upset victory there a few weeks back. And uh, is this something that we could see again? And do you think that that it warrants a rematch? Yeah, I think it warrants a rematch. It was fight of the year, uh, yeah. the year that they faced. That was a couple of years ago. Right. Uh, Nonito Donaire, uh, I think at the time was the only one that really gives, in a way, uh, a challenge. Um, all the experience that Nonito brings into the ring from fighting Regan Dow and, you know, many more. I think he fought against, uh, uh, what's his name? Jesse Magdaleno. Um, you know, he's fought against some really good quality opponents. So he takes all this experience into the ring. He's great with timing. Yeah, that's, that's what Nonitos is great at. He's great at timing. He's great at placing his shots. He's precise with his left hook, which is a deadly punch. And I knew sooner or later it was either going to be a left hook or uppercut that was going to end his match. Uh, and he's going to win the championship, uh, once again, like he did. And then the rematch is definitely, I believe everybody wants to see it. Um, in a way, definitely has gotten better since the rematch. And as you can see, uh, Nonito Denair is still uh, riding high and still at the top level at, of his game. So why not see a rematch of these two uh, legends? I would say Nonito's a legend right now, and I can tell you that right now, the way Inouye is going, he is definitely going to be a legend in the sport. So 
must-see TV, man. All right, Timothy Bradley joins us, the five-time champ, ESPN top-ranked boxing analyst. You know, one thing that impressed me about Inouye in that fight was you don't see a lot of fighters that go to the body as much as he did and as aggressively. I think he landed 30 punches and 17 were body shots. Uh, I was really impressed by that because he can go for the head, but obviously he wanted to kind of chop him down a little bit. And then also with the power that he does, how does he generate so much power with his size? You know, I asked him the same thing. Uh, power is all gener- is generated from the ground up, of course. The, the torso turn, the leg shifting, you know, the pivot on the end of the shot, uh, the pivot on with the foot, and also the shoulders coming behind it. You know, if you look at if you look at these guys that have punching power, and I'm not talking about the tall, linky guys. I'm talking about the shorter, stockier guys like Manny Pacquiao. They possess so much power. Look, look at the legs that they have. If you look at anyways, freaking calves and thighs, they're massive. They're massive. I mean, one of one of anyway's calves is twice the size of my calves. So, <laughs> you know, you're gonna you gotta think of balance. You know, just like hitting the hitting the baseball, same thing. Balance. It's all about mechanics. It's about technique. It's about doing the same thing over and over and over and creating great habits. You know, from when you're a kid. So generating punching power is easy, and you gotta be on you know properly balanced, and that's what makes. In a way, so dangerous is is that, and I said something during the broadcast. I said, man, he's just always balanced. Even when he's in exchanges and he gets hit flush, it's almost like there's an autocorrect with his balance because he can be pushed back but still be on balance and still be effective with his punches and, uh, and hit hard, extremely hard. So, Vasily Lomachenko in action Saturday night against Matsuyoshi Nakatani. It's going to be a great fight. But hey, let's talk about Lomo. This is his first fight. From in, we shouldn't say a shocking loss because he faced Teofimo uh, Lopez. It was a mm-hmm. great bout last year. Remember it very, very well. Uh, how does he respond from this? Because again, he seemed very. He started off very slow. If we go back to that bout, and it took him a long time to get untracked, and and he was just so far behind in the judges' scorecards. How does Lomo react after that loss? Well, I think I think if you look at Loma's uh, previous losses, as an amateur, he lost once and then came back right. and avenged that loss twice. And then he didn't get a chance to fight Salido again. I guess Salido didn't want to face him or whatnot, or the money wasn't right. I'm not sure which one. But he comes back in his third fight, and he wins a world championship against a really good fighter in Gary Russell Jr. <laughs> that we don't talk much about, um, who's, who's still a champion today. And then, you know, I think he's he's shown that he gets better. He gets better when he loses. You know, he, you know, Lomachenko is a winner. Okay, he hasn't lost much in his career, and when he does, he comes back. You know, fume, uh, just just fumed and ready to go. You know, furious, and he wants to put on a impression. And, and he wants to put on an impression uh, to the fans and to everyone watching that. And he wants to show that he's a better fighter than, than Lopez. You know, Lopez struggled against Nakatani. He wants to come in here and have an emphatic win, blow this guy out the water, and I think he will. I think it's a perfect style matchup for Lomachenko. And I'll tell you why a little bit later. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) but let's go back to that fight in October uh, with Lomo against Lopez. Why do you think he lost that fight? Well, he started too late. Yeah. He started too late. He gave, I think, he gave Lopez a little bit too much respect early on, um, and, and and he's making this excuse of of, of his shoulder. And, it, and you know, there's a possibility that his shoulder was hurt. But the thing is, is that a lot of times fighters, we go into big fights and we go into fights and we're injured. I mean, I fought with with bruised ribs before. I fought with hurt hands, hurt. Uh, you know, I fought with a hurt thumb. 
Um, I fought with injuries in my calves. I mean, I fought. We've we've always fight with something. There's always nicks and pains or bruises or something that we go into the fight with. We're never 100%, honestly. Uh, it's very rare if you get a fighter in there that say, ah, everything went perfect in camp. Because you got to think about it. You're sparring. It's long days. It's eight weeks of training. It's eight weeks of hell. Waking up, doing the same thing over and over. Stressing your body out. Losing weight. You know, we tear our bodies down. It's the only sport where you tear your body down and you got to perform. You know, every other sport, you can be as big as you possibly want, and, and, and it's fine. It's okay. But boxing, you tear yourself down. Um, Sounds a lot so like broadcasting, I, don't you think? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not. It, you, broadcasting is you tear the other fighter down. There you, <laughs> you go. Tear all the That's guys what we down do. On the broadcast. That's what we do. We tear them down, man. But, uh, you know, it's it's not. We don't get to take. We don't take the punches in broadcasting, which is which is better. You gotta and you love still get that. Paid. There you go, so, man. But uh, the reason why is, is it, but, but I mean, honestly, he started too late. If yeah. he would have started a lot sooner, um, you can see that the pressure was getting to Lopez at the end. Um, but uh, Lopez came out, had a great 12, uh, 12th round, fantastic, and kind of, you know, um, put the fork in uh, Loma and in his victory. And so if they fight again, I, I, I can tell you this, it's, it's going to be a different fight. I can tell you this right yeah. now. Um, many people may think uh, Lopez will win again. I don't know. I think it could go the other way around. How do you uh, make sure that that doesn't happen again, that you don't start out too slow? Is that on the boxer or is that on the corner saying, look, you've got to pick it up because you're giving away too many rounds early and you're not going to have enough time to catch up? What is that perfect science to, to know where you're at and know when you've really got to start turning it on before you gave up too much to make up? Well, honestly, it's, honestly, it's going to be an adjustment, especially in the corner. Uh, just the game plan in general. I, th- I thought the game plan was kind of, uh, I don't know, too cl- too close to my comfort. I, I, I was just, I was expecting Loma to pick it up around four, uh, not so late. Um, you know, he you saw. I mean, I saw how he was getting to Lopez later in the fight. And now, if he starts a little bit sooner, then I think the tide would definitely be changed. But um, it all starts with the training and and just coming in with the game plan and executing the game plan. Uh, Loma has that ability. He's strong-willed. He has a strong mind, strong mentality, mental toughness. Does you know, extreme amount of mental toughness. So, I expect him to come in there. He knows what he needs to do, and I expect him to try to achieve and to try to and try to go for it. So, that's just it. It's all training, training camp, and the mindset of the fighter. That's all. That's all it's about. And this—that's what Lomachenko does. I mean, he's always yeah. been a slow starter. Always, you know, he's very tactical, yeah. and then he does, you know, p- pick it up and usually put. It has a stoppage, and somewhere usually around, around six, seven, or eight, and he wears a yeah. guy down. I mean, we saw that with Nicholas Walters, and the same. I mean, yeah. I, we can go on and on. Many, many, uh, you know, Gary, uh, Gary Russell Jr. talking about as well too. Same thing. Start off right. slow, and then you know he just wears you down, and makes you quit. So uh well but, when you do rematches think about it when you do rematches there will be minor adjustments yes, but you know yes. you know that fighter in rematch. and out yes. you know you know exactly how he fights and so uh he can make the adjustments a lot quicker now you got to give you got to give Lopez credit too because Lopez he knows how to fight southpaws very very well and he took a lot of what Loma likes to do away from him so he was able to control range outside with his jab he was outboxing Lomachenko, and he wouldn't allow Lomachenko to get on the side of him. And every time he would step to the side, Lopez would spin spin around and, and catch him on that angle. So, you know, Lopez is a smart fighter. He's not a dumb fighter, and he's, he's highly educated and has a really high IQ to be a young fighter.
All right, let's talk a little bit about Nakatani. Now, his last fight against uh, Verdejo, that was a fantastic fight, exciting fight that wow. took place last December. Nakatani was down on all scorecards, and he comes back and scores a knockout. So this is what makes this fight interesting. And, you know, Nakatani was, was a great champion in his own right uh, in mm-hmm. Japan as well, too. So uh, talk a little bit about Nakatani. Well, Nakatani is, is one of those guys that, uh, and I think we, I think we, get mixed up between being a tough guy and actually having superior skills. Um, Nakatani doesn't have uh, like uh, superior skills. What he brings into the ring is is mental toughness, grit. Uh, he has some punching power. He's tall, long, and you know he has that range. You know that helps him in a lot of his fights. So he has a good jab. He's fearless. He comes forward. He likes to stock his opponents, and he's looking for a knockout. He and he, he possesses the right hand. That's pretty dangerous, and, and we saw that in the the Verdejo fight when he caught Verdejo flushing with the right hand. If you pull out in range, and if he hits you at the right spot, he can hurt you. Now Lomachenko's different, and I'm going to tell you this: it's different because he's not going to stay on the end of the shot. He's going to be moving side to side, in and out. And Loma's going to be looking to close the gap on Nakatani because what I see from Nakatani is he he go he does very well coming forward, but when he's going backwards, that's where he has problems. He doesn't have really good educated feet to move and and find ways to be able to hide inside the ring. So I think that's going to favor Lomachenko, being a smaller guy, shorter, fisted guy, to get inside with the speed, his accuracy, and just with his IQ, he's going to be able to break this guy down on the inside and I don't think this guy can fight that well bagging up. So, um, but toughness, uh, you won't find a tougher guy. <laughs> you won't find a tougher guy went down, I believe three or four times right. with Valdez. I mean, with uh Verdejo and came back and knocked him out. I mean, you know, you won't find a, a more gamed opponent than Nakatani. So it's going to be a great challenge. I, I, I can't wait to see it. Um, I, I know I'm saying I know I'm saying what I'm saying, but anything can happen in the sport of boxing. Uh, if Lomachenko is healthy, if he's healthy, he's going to be a problem for anybody in the 135 pound division, including Nakatani. You got it. But if he's not healthy, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, folks. <laughs> you guys were talking not about. Good for- you guys were talking about Nakatani and being behind on all the judges' scorecards the last fight. Mm-hmm. Knowing that Lomachenko comes out and he has a tendency to start out slow, does Nakatani maybe try to come out a little bit quicker, try to get a couple early rounds or something? Or uh, yeah. how, how do you see this fight starting out a little bit? Uh, Nakatani, see, the thing is is that when you're fighting against a southpaw, one, one way to beat a southpaw is just by putting pressure on him. If you put pressure on them and you keep their backs against the ropes, and, and I call it I call it the T position, to where you, you you have them squared up on the ropes and moving back as often as possible, and you're looking like the aggressor one, and then you're working. You can work both hands when they're squared up. You take the angles away from them, so it doesn't matter if he moves right or left. I mean, when you're against the ropes, you only can move left or right. So you're right in the middle, and you can work your right hand and also your left hand. Nakatani's going to come out, and he's going to try to push the pace. He's going to be aggressive. He's not a boxer. He's not going to sit back and try to box. I mean, he does have some counterpunching ability, but the problem with Nakatani is is that his his transition his transition game is horrible. So from offense to defense, he's quite terrible. You can you can hit him with counters, but he's tough and he's always in your face. He's always in your face. He's like a freaking gnat at the park, you know. That's always in your face. You can't get rid of. So you know he's going to push the pace. I, I, I you know and it's very I think it's very important for him to come out and try to win some of these early rounds and really make 
Lomachenko get overly aggressive or have to be overly aggressive to catch up on the scorecards if he needs to, and then that way it'll better his chances in in hurting Lomachenko and catch him on the way inside. So, all right, Timothy Bradley joins us. Looking forward to Lomachenko and Nakatani Saturday night. Another great. Uh, Great stacked undercard as well, too, yeah. uh, coming up on Saturday night. So you mentioned the 135-pound division. I love this division. Mm-hmm. You got Lomachenko. We got Lopez, who we talked about. We also got Dave uh, Devin Haney. We talked about him in the past, too. Ryan Garcia, not too many people talk about him. And then over there on the Al Heyman side, you got Gervonta Davis. All these mm-hmm. fighters, Tim, they're in their early to mid-20s. I think they're all between like 22 and 26 years old. I mean, this is a great division, in your opinion. Who's the best? Hmm. I mean, right now, I, honestly, I, I have to go with uh, Lopez at the moment. Honestly, um, Lopez is the guy that has all the belts. He beat the man, um, arguably the best pound-for-pound fighter at the time, which is Lomachenko. Uh, Lomachenko is not an easy fight for any of these guys. Um, I, I like the progress from Devin Haney. I like the marriage that he has with uh, Ben Davison. I think that uh, you saw some new wrinkles in his game when he fought, when he fought against Linares. Um, I think um, Tank Davis, uh, another guy, he's fighting at 140, testing the waters there, see how he feels with the weight. Um, there is a big difference uh, as far as punching power there. The guys hit a lot harder at 140 than 135. If he can pass the test this weekend against uh, Barrios, uh, who's a who's a talented fighter. I think he's a little green, but I think he's a talented fighter and, and does pose somewhat of a threat until he gets hit and then it's night night for him um and um you know garcia i i don't know much of garcia i mean since his whole um you know problems with you know depression and anxiety and stuff like that so i don't know where his head is at and not sure what he's going to be doing but uh, i just know one thing if your head's not right in the game uh there's going to be problems inside the ring because you you can't run from you can't run from anything. Your your soul is on display when you get inside that ring. So if there's any issues or outside issues that are that you're going through, it's going to show. It's going to show inside the ring. So uh, I think that Garcia needs to be take his time. He needs to get himself right mentally first, then uh, come back and you know try to take over the division. But hey, great division. But I just want to see these guys fight. Yeah. I want to see these guys fight. I, I'm sick of. Who this? Who's the best? Who the, hey, we're going to find out who's the best when everybody starts facing one another. You know, that's when you find out who's the best. I know when I was coming up, that's what it was like. I wanted to face the best. To face the best. Uh, my partner, Andre Ward, wanted to fight the best. That's why he got the Super Six tournament. Yeah. You know, and, and that's the way, that's what we were raised up, man, the old school way. Fight the best guys out there that's possible, possibly that's ready to fight. Beat them and keep moving forward, so... You got that right. And one thing we do know about Ryan Garcia, okay? He's pretty good in the family feud. Him, him and our guy Showtime Sean Porter, they were on the feud, and they dominated. They won the big money, Tim. I want to know when Tim Bradley's going on the family feud. Oh, man. Or are you more of a Price is Right guy? What's Tim Bradley all about when it comes to game shows? Hey, I'm not going to lie. I do like the Price is Right, but the, <laughs> hey, the family feud, bring it, man. I'm, re- I'm ready. <laughs> all right, so if, if we're doing the family feud, give me the Tim Bradley uh, team. Who's it going to be? And doesn't it necessarily have to be, you know, Monica or whatever? It could be whoever you want. If you're assembling the Tim Bradley Family Feud team, who is it? Never really thought of it, man. I never really, I never honestly really thought of <laughs> who would I pick on my team. 
My goodness. Do they have to be fighters? I mean, no, who, I, well, like I, I said, it doesn't have to be. No, I mean, who, who do you think? I mean, you know, usually there's a theme there. You know what I'm saying? Whether there, it's a fight team or a family team or, you know, whatever. But we're, 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 I don't know, we just brought it up. So what the heck? We make our own rules here. You tell me who's yeah, on the Tim hey, Bradley team. Rules. I'm putting my hand yeah, up. I'm going to be on the Tim Bradley team. You <laughs> and I will dominate that fast money. How many people? I think, is it five people? Yeah, it's five people total. It, you, all right, you, well, it could be all training partners or something. Well, that I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm gonna have to go with my entire team. Team. I'm gonna have to go with my entire ESPN team. Okay. So okay. I might have to go after is that no entire ESPN team from from Andre Ward to <laughs> to uh, Bernardo Osuna to Mike Kriegel. Then you have uh, Joe Tessitore, and then myself. There you go. Okay, right. okay but That's now, the, but now the big question: If you win the game, who are the two that play for the big money? That's right. They got to be the smartest two, so you make sure you get that big cash. Yeah. Well, um, let me see. I gotta go. I gotta go with. I'm, I'll probably go with Mark Kriegel. I gotta go with Mark Kriegel to win the cash. Yeah. And then I will probably have to go with. Uh, I gotta go with Joe Tessitore after that. Yeah, Mark Kriegel and Joe Tessitore, the two that's gonna have to get that big money. They are gonna have to get. So it. you're yeah, not there. You're not there in the <laughs> no, final. Hell, no. It's the Tim Bradley team. Come on, man. <laughs> I don't do a. I don't do well when I when I. <laughs> Wait a minute, Tim. I don't know now. You're leaving somebody out. We're getting a phone call on the other end here. Our guy, Teddy Atlas, is saying, what do you mean, Tim Bradley? You're not picking me. Come on. Oh. I mean, you can have Teddy Atlas on. Just for entertainment purposes, you got to have Teddy on, right? No, 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 no. I want, I want my team, my ESPN team. No, sir. Oh, that's too funny. Man. Atlas, Atlas would be trying to tell us what to say. He I'm would. He that. would. Yeah. <laughs> Don't say that. That's dumb. <laughs> He'll be in the crowd just chiming you from the crowd. So. <laughs> hey, you know what? Bring Atlas. We need a motivational speaker. There, you absolutely got that right. He's a, Let's go, That's Tim. Right, That's man. right, Tim. Let's go. Like a fireman. You got to be that fireman, Tim. Let's go. Now go out there and put out that fire. That's what we do. All right. There you go. Tim said, man, I heard enough of that. <laughs> hey, brother. Great talking with you. Appreciate you spending time you. today. I know you'll be busy the next couple days. And I'll definitely try to hook up with you on Saturday night, man. See, you're over on the stage, man. They don't, they don't let us other media guys over to you. So it's hard to get over to you. Really? Really? Yeah. Well, we're so, going to have to change that, man. Let me know. There you go, man. Let me know. Oh. You're going to have to change that. Come see me. I will, man. All right. Thanks a lot, Tim. All right, buddy. Hey, is. thank you. All just, right. just tell them you're part of the Family Feud team. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> I'll, tell, I'll tell those ESPN guys. I'm running this family. I created it. Let's go. All right, man. Timothy Bradley, the five-time champ, does a fantastic job on the ESPN top-ranked broadcast. Him, Andre Roard, Joe Tessitore, and company. All right. When we come back. We start talking VGK a little bit more and NBA playoffs. We got Major League Baseball. Oh, yeah. Picking up where we left off with Steve Sachs yesterday, the pitching nonsense, Max Scherzer, Joe Girardi at the front and center of it. We've got that coming up next. Hang tight. Now you're going to bring it up and, and just put salt on the wound? Will you stop yelling at me? No. Live in the entertainment capital of the world. No, no, you're making me nervous, but seriously. It's the T.C. Martin Show. No, listen. Is there a uh, you're making me nervous. Diagnosis. Oh, and a foul. Prognosis. Well, that's good. Osmosis. And they'll reset. Nowitzki again for the lead. Bang. It's the doctor, T.C. Martin.
Hour number two of the program. Glad to have you here on this Wednesday. We've got some NBA talk. Playoff game tonight between the Milwaukee Bucks. Taking on the Atlanta Hawks. Game number one of that uh, series. And then uh, last night, we will talk about what happened with the Phoenix Suns and the L.A. Clippers. What a crazy game that was. we got Major League Baseball to talk about as well, too. Scott Spreitzer will join us uh, at the bottom of the hour, so hang tight uh, for that. Always good here on a Wednesday. T.C. Martin, Ballpark Frank with you. More store ratchet or more of what you're looking for. Yes, this is what we got going tonight. Basketball. Uh, can game number one between the Bucks and the Hawks live up to what we saw last night? That is a question. Well, we didn't see it because you and I were at the hockey game. But we saw the following. highlights of it. Yeah. But, and I uh, saw you post uh, the... The end of the game. Yes, yes, yeah, because that that was a crazy ending. So uh, we'll see what happens, uh, you know, with that. All right, uh, there we go. I want to thank uh, Timothy Bradley for joining us. We talked a little Lomachenko and uh, Nakatani as they are going to be doing it. Again, we'll have tickets to give away for that fight as well starting tomorrow, so hang tight with that. Uh, But right now, you know, we thought we would get our other good friend on. That's right. Haley from New York. The internationally boxing Hall of Fame trainer himself and very good friend. We're talking about the one and only Teddy Atlas pulled over on the side of the road, driving around probably New York somewhere. Teddy, what's going on, my man? Just uh, trying to help you out, do a little talk for you. <laughs> I think. Well, you know, we, we just brought you up. We were talking to Tim Bradley, your, your, your former uh, guy that you trained, and we were asking Tim... You know, it, who would he have? He put a family feud together. Uh, who would be his team? And I said, you would have to have Teddy Atlas on your team on the family feud. And he said, Teddy would probably tell us all, you know, that's a stupid answer. You know, that's the right answer. That's a stupid answer. Could we see Teddy Atlas on the family feud? Do you think that would work? I don't know. I haven't given it too much thought, to be honest with you. And I don't think I'm going to give it too much thought uh, after we hang up. <laughs> I'll tell you what you give some thought to, though. Uh, you know, you we saw you on the Mike Tyson knockout docu- documentary that was on ABC, and then now we're seeing uh, the the Kings on on Showtime. Uh, fantastic, uh, Teddy. You're 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 all over these things, and uh, again, a lot of legends that you've been involved with. Uh, Kind of a you know you know take us uh, through this. Let's let's start with the Showtime documentary on uh, how that all came about and give us your thoughts about it. Which one? They were both on Showtime. You talking about the one with the four kings? Yeah, the four kings. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. because they were both on. Uh, well, the ABC uh, one was you. Know, with, oh no, with Tyson. no, that's right. That yeah. was ABC yeah. With, with, yeah. with Tyson. Right. Yeah, the, listen. They call me. They ask me. You know, they call the, the people that they think can legitimately. Speak about these fighters in these times and these uh, obviously these situations. So they asked me if I would if I would do it, and uh, I have a lot of respect for those fighters and for that time because it was the last good time in the, in boxing. Really, I mean uh, the golden years of boxing is the 30s, the 40s, where you had fighters you're never going to see again with 300 fights. I mean, the times are different. The landscape is different. You're never going to see a fighter with 300 fights like Archie Moore or Henry Armstrong, you know, 120, 110 knockouts. You never, I mean, that's over. But uh, back in those days, not only did they have that many fights, but there were that many great fighters, and they were all fighting each other. And then, you know, you didn't always have that again. 
And then all of a sudden you get the 80s where you got network television, number one. You got great talent, number two. I mean, just tremendous fighters. And you got them fighting each other. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore. The, you know, it doesn't happen with any of these. You got four or five power, well, really, three or four power brokers in boxing. Let's be honest. And yeah. they have their little piece of land, and uh, they they protect it. And they have their sugar daddy. Their sugar daddy is the network, you know, that takes that allows them to do that. And they go out there and they they protect their fighters. They keep undefeated fighters so they can draw you in. They can draw the fans in. Uh, but they don't consistently put on great fights. You know, they protect their guys. They won't let them go across the street to make the great fight. You know, whether it's Spence and Crawford or, you know, whether it's some of the lightweights. you got some great lightweight fights that could be made. Uh, most of them are never going to be made because they're not going to go and allow them to fight, you know, under the banner or, you know, in a co-promotion of two banners with the other fighter. They want to control the whole thing so they can control the money. They can control, you know, at the end of the day, they can't lose because the guy they're fighting, they have uh, options on, they have control over. So either way, they can't lose. And they want to keep it that way. They don't care about the the fans. They don't care about the, the, the sport in that kind of way. They just care about, you know, keeping their power base and, you know, making sure that, they don't jeopardize that. Every once in a while you get thrown a bone. But, you know, you're not going to get people who say, well, you know, thank God we got the uh, – well, they don't say that after it happened, to be honest. But mm-hmm. at the beginning they said, thank God we got Pacquiao Mayweather. First of all, it was five years too late. People realized that, so they were very disappointed. But you only got it because the, it became an impossible fight not to make because of the money, the universe of money. I mean, that is, you know, it was one of those – crazy one in a million, one in a billion if you want. You probably had a better chance of hitting lottery than of ever believing that there would be a fight where, you know, one guy could walk away with over two hundred million and another guy could walk away with over a hundred million. Yeah, you never thought that was possible. And when it happened, the different networks, the different promoters had to get together uh for that one. But the rest of them no. And the eighties was different. It's a reminder of when boxing was, again, as great as it's supposed to always be, where you had the best fighters fighting each other. And, of course, you had the bonus. You didn't have pay-per-views. You didn't have it, you know, you didn't have it on uh, one or two was on closed circuit. But for the most part, they were on network TV. And, again, you had great special fighters fighting each other. You had Hearns, you had Leonard, you had Heigler, you had Duran. Oh, my God. It was, and, and that's, you know, that's why the documentary was made, to go back and, and take a glance at when it was still good and more than good, when it was great. Yeah, absolutely. Teddy Atlas joins us. Uh, you know, Teddy, you talk about, you know, now we're just void of these matchups and these fights. And like you mentioned, Mayweather Pacquiao t- took too long. We're seeing so many uh, these guys, you know, with the welterweight division, for example, Al Heyman has all these guys. They're not active enough. It's just it's ridiculous. Let's go back to the 70s and 80s like you're talking about. And with this four kings and you mentioned Leonard Hagler, Duran, fantastic. But really back in those days. You know, it was Bob Arum, top rank, and Don King, really. I mean, you had some other promoters, but, you know, even though... 
people made a big deal about those guys like not wanting to work with each other, they still were able to make fights, and they did uh, work with each other, right? So we 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 actually got the the, the big fights and the better fights, right? More so now yeah, than I mean, more look, so then than, than mean, now. Listen, of course you. Yeah, I mean it's a rhetorical question because you know the answer. Right. That's why they made a documentary movie about it because yeah. <laughs> they, we did get the best fighters fighting each other. Look, some of them were free agents. You know, some of them were free agents where they uh, Sugar Ray Leonard was a free agent. You got to remember that. They weren't all tied up with Aaron King. So, you know, and you could, uh, you know, you, they could go across the street and just make the fight. And, and the sport benefited from it and the fans benefited from it. And it, it, now it's, you got a lot of fans running for the gates. I hate to say it. This sports my whole life. My whole life. Yep. But I hate to say it, but the truth is the truth. UFC has bypassed. I never thought this would happen. Never. I mean, we talk about it on my podcast, but I never thought UFC would surpass boxing with the numbers. Now, look, when it comes to the big cable network that's got, you know, they got in a built-in audience and you put on a big fight, you know, if you put on... If you put if you put on Joshua and Fury or, or Canelo with somebody big, of course that universe with boxing is always going to be better. It's always going to be bigger. But on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, when you're putting on the fights that these networks are putting on week to week, you know, month in month out, UFC has bypassed those numbers by far. You know why? Because they put competitive fights on. They put fights where it's not A against B. They they put fights where either guy can win, and you get great fights. And that's why they're doing great numbers. And that's why that brand of UFC has grown to the point that it's grown. And look, there's a reason for it. They got an advantage. You know, how many years, 25 years I was with ESPN, screaming, getting in trouble, getting suspended sometimes, but doing what I thought was best for the sport, screaming, saying, hey, we need a national commission, Okay. There's too much corruption in the sport. Anything else, we don't even have time to go over it. But we need a national commission like the other sports have, baseball, football, basketball. Uh, but we don't. But the one thing about the UFC, they might not have a national commission, but they got a dictator. And and what that means is, you know, it's not a guy going out there and, you know, shooting people and having them in a firing squad. There's a dictator that it's his way and the highway. But it's a dictator that is going to make sure that the standard for his sport, yeah, his sport, for his business, is going to be what it needs to be to continue to make the business, the business, the whole business thrive. Mm-hmm. Not, not just a couple of fighters, but the whole business thrived. Because that's, that's what he's about, because he's part of that business. So he makes sure that every week there's good fights. He doesn't have these fights that you see when you put a ESPN on, you know, too often. Or if you put, it's not just them, you put BBC, you know, where they're all fighting in-house. All in-house. Right. It's, it's like musical chairs. Like, after a while, it's like, stop. Will you stop it? I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, with all of them, the, the zone, or whoever you want to mention, where they're all, for the most part, they're all protected. It's like the protective business. And but you go. There's nobody freaking protected at UFC. <laughs> oh my God! There's nobody. 
I like to call it the umbrella business, Teddy, because they, they're fighting underneath their own umbrella. That's all it is, the umbrella business of boxing all right now. All it is is there's one guy in charge, yeah. and he's saying, we're doing what's best for the sport. Right. That's it. It's not complicated. That's the formula. We're doing not what's best for, for you and for you. What's best for the sport? At the end of the day, what's best for the, for the sport is best for the fans. That's what we're doing. You mentioned UFC and you mentioned the other organizations in boxing that have the umbrella thing. How crazy does it make you in this day and age that now we see kind of a three-ring circus aspect of it where you have things like the Paul brothers fighting and Mayweather fighting a Paul brother, guys that really aren't even boxers at all, and all of a sudden they're not only getting in boxing matches or so-called boxing matches, but they're on pay-per-view events. Listen, that's a byproduct of what's going on. Maybe, maybe part of it is because people can't see Spencer Crawford. They can't get those second fights, so they, they go to something else. But it's also it's, it's a new audience. It's a young audience. Uh, it's a new audience. It's a YouTube audience where these guys built up a huge space, and now they find a way to profit from it in a different way, in the ring. And there's an audience for it. Uh, it's entertainment. You know, you call it carnival, call it circus, call it the Jerry Springer show. Because Jerry Springer show was a carnival. But you know what? People were watching it. You know, they wanted to see crazy, extreme things. And people don't have a big attention span, if you haven't noticed. So, you know, you get their attention quick. And you get it where, hey, a YouTuber is fighting the greatest fight of all time. They forget he's not the greatest fight of all time. I love Mayweather. No one loves him and respects him better than me. But at 44 and hadn't fought for four years, that's not Mayweather. That's not Mayweather anymore. It's a different version, different guy. And so, but they don't think about that. Because Barnum and Bailey was right, the great promoter. This is sucker born every two minutes. You could bring people in. And I don't mean to insult people's intelligence, but you know what? Sometimes maybe it should be insulted a little bit because you can bring people into the tent. Yeah, you can ring that bell and, and get them to come and say, hey, wow, you're going to say a YouTube, he's going to beat the best fighter in the world. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, I got to see this. So, you know, if, if Marvel Comics puts on another Spider-Man show, uh, movie, guess what? It's going to do good again. There's 150 of them, but they're going to keep doing good. People want entertainment. They want their imagination to, you know, to be taken care of. And that's one way to feed the imagination. Mm-hmm. And there's one other thing, and it's a phenomena, and I give them credit for it, where it's kind of like the movie The Matrix, where they unplugged it, and they made it real, where they took these YouTubers that, that have their life on YouTube, and now one of their guys, one of their own. Wow. He's on TV fighting real fights. So that means we're there, too, with them because they're part of it. It's their guy. Just like they were with them with the YouTube stuff. Hey, my YouTube stuff now, I'm not playing games on YouTube now, pushing buttons. I'm actually now in a ring where it went, it went from alternate reality, alternative reality, to real. Like, it's real. Like, my YouTube is in a ring fighting someone where we used to fight on those games with Mayweather. Now we're fighting with flesh and blood. For real. Hmm. So <laughs> they, they were very smart to be able to take this and to exploit it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's the American way. I don't knock anyone. It's the American way. You're not hurting anybody. You go out there and make money. It's the American way. And you know what? Credit to them. That's what they're doing. And as far as the money Mayweather's making, let them make a zillion more. Because for me, any fighters, any fighters that put it on the line, that go into that ring, and like I've said for years, and I'm, I said it for years, Every time you go, and you heard me on ESPN, every time you get in the ring, there's a chance you get out of that ring with less of yourself. So anytime, they, any money these guys can make, after risking themselves, Floyd's been a pro fighter for over 20 years, after risking yourself all those years getting in that ring, you, you make as much as you can, brother. And I'm with you. There he is, the legend, Teddy Atlas. He's got a great podcast as well, The Fight with Teddy Atlas, the podcast. We talk about the four kings on Showtime. Check that out. Teddy, real quick, I, I do want to talk to you about you know, the knockout with the Mike Tyson story. You were fantastic in that. And let me ask you, because I know we have talked about this a little bit in the past, and I just get the feeling, correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes you maybe you don't like to talk ab- about Mike Tyson because of the, the, the nature of your relationship and what happened, and that was diagnosed uh, in, in, uh, in the story. Is, is that difficult to go back and, and think about that, and how do you feel about Mike Tyson today? I wish him all the luck in the world, and I'm happy. I think he's in a good place, and I hope to God that he is. Um, and I'm happy for him that he's reinvented himself that he's been able to come back, not only financially, but uh, to come back humanly, you know, to get to a place where, because that's what it's about. That's what success is about. It's not about money. It's about being happy and being satisfied with who you are. And I think maybe he's at that place now. It seems like he is. And I'm happy for him. I'm, I'm, I'm happy for him. And I hope he stays in that place. Uh, and he continues to thrive uh, in, in those ways. All right. Uh, before we let you go, Teddy, we talked about you know some of these fights, and again, it's different. Is there a fight out there that you're really looking forward to seeing? Is it Fury Wilder three? Is it Spence Pacquiao? Uh, what are you looking forward to seeing the most, if anything, here this summer or this fall? It's not Spence Pacquiao. I love both of them. Uh, I love the style of Spence. I love the dedication of Spence, the relentlessness, the attitude of Spence. Um, you know everything about him. And Pacquiao is an icon. There's not a million icons out there. Uh, and, and I love the person in the human years, the human being is helping all those people in, in, in the Philippines and being just being a source of inspiration. Very few people get a chance to be that. Very few. And it's a privilege if you do. You know, you think it's a privilege to be able to punch hard and move fast and have good light work and make things. It's a privilege to also, even more so, to be able to help people. And Pacquiao does that. He does that just being Pacquiao, besides what else he does, giving away things and helping. But just being Pacquiao, it gives hope to people. They come from some real serious poverty in all different places like we do in this country, but in the Philippines, there's plenty of it. And he gives people hope. And if he can do it, they can do it. So you got two great guys in there. The only thing I don't like about it, you know, at this point in Pacquiao's life and his career, over 40 years old. I know he's been pulling the rabbit out of the hat. I know he's, I know he's been shocking everyone. He beat Thurman. You know, he's not supposed to do that. A young guy, a guy who's really good. He might have caught him at the right time because Thurman had been off for over two years, and then he had one fight back. He looked horrible, and then he got back here. But it doesn't matter. He still beat him. He beat a guy that he, he wasn't supposed to beat at this point in his life. But now he's even older. Now he's even more inactive. And, you know, he's fighting... 
a real big welterweight. I mean, don't forget, Pacquiao, when he started, he was like 105 pounds. <laughs> and now he's grown all the way up to this. So he's, it's not like he's ever was a natural welterweight. And now he's fighting not only a natural welterweight, but he's a guy that's huge. And relentless, as I said, good pub. Good body punches, you know, he, he goes to the head, the body, uh, punches well. You know, he he also can fight inside, outside. He's got a great jab to set everything up. I, I just, I hate to see guys stay too long. It broke my heart to see when I watched the films of Joe Lewis fight Marciano. Oh, listen, Marciano was great. But that wasn't Joe Lewis in the ring anymore with him. And then Muhammad Ali with Holmes. And that wasn't that wasn't Muhammad Ali. And to, just to see these guys stay too long, it's sad. I, I it, it's, it's sad. And to think that there'll be some young people out there that that'll be the only part of the legacy that no, they won't know the other part. It, I, it, I'm just concerned that that could happen. That we could be talking about yeah, Pacquiao stay too long yeah. uh, because. This is the kind of style, this is the kind of man, this is the kind of fight that when it gets in the real shadowy parts of your life, the real twilight of your life, this is the kind of guy in Spence that can be real problems. And, you know, maybe, he'll, again, he'll pull Rapid out of the hat. Pacquiao is so special. Maybe he will. But I'm not so sure. And I'm just worried it will be the fight that he will go out with at the end. And it might not be the fight that we would like to really see. And we look forward to that fight coming here in August in Las Vegas. You talk about Manny Pacquiao doing so much good and in, in, in give. Teddy Atlas, you do it as well, too. And I, I always like to mention this when I have you on. I appreciate it. And uh, the Dr. Theodore Atlas Foundation is your baby. You've done fantastic stuff. Uh, with people there in New York and, and, and everywhere else. And, and I always like to have you plug that because it is fantastic, my friend, because talk about giving back, that's what you do. Hey, I appreciate it. Listen, 25 years we've been doing it. It's a foundation to remember a good man. He was my father, yeah. but he was a man that took care of people. That you know, He, he did house calls for free until he was 80 years old. That's all you need to know. He built a hospital that had 22 beds. He built that had 22 beds in it way, way back for one reason, so people could get proper hospital care that couldn't afford it, and he absorbed the cost. And he did it for 55 years. He took care of people, and he lived that way. So, you know, I started a foundation, remember, in the spirit that he lived. And, you know, we'd never be near what he was, but we take care of people. We take care of the people that fall through the cracks. You know, if a family needs to have their child, they don't have the proper insurance, they need special surgery, but but it's not paid for by insurance, which it's a lot in this country. You know, people, a lot of people don't realize there's doctors that do not accept insurance. There are. And they do specialized surgery that sometimes a kid needs that kind of special surgery. So when that happens and they have nowhere to go, we step in. And quietly, you know, we're going, we'll pay for the surgery um, for that. Or we'll fly a kid out of state where... They get the treatment program that might not be available in their area, uh, and they got to fly out. So we'll fly them out. We'll fly their parents out. You know, we'll put handicap ramps up. Uh, we, you know, we take care of the people that, as I said, that need to be taken care of, that have nowhere else to go. And we also do social programs where we go into these at-risk schools in New York. They're called Title One schools, where 
that families making less than 35000 a year. So you talk about real poverty. And quite frankly, what goes along with that, you're talking about North Shores for the most part. So we go into the schools with these kids, and these kids are lost. I mean, they're angry, they're lost, they're, you know, and um, we go in there, and I don't talk. I'm not going to lie. I, we don't talk studies. And, and listen, some of these kids, they, they can't read, they can't, they, they, they fail math, uh, and, and they're, they're getting, they're not getting younger, they're, they're, they're only getting older, they're going further and further ahead in school without knowing how to read, without knowing how to do basic things, um, because they don't care to. Not because they're dumb. They don't care to. They don't care anymore. So what we do is I don't go in there and start preaching about, hey, you got to do better, man. Of course I want to do better. No, of course. But that's not where it's at with these kids. I go in there and I just say, hey, listen, I know you've got problems. I'm, I'm not disputing that. I'm not here to talk about that right now. I'm here to talk about what you can do. I know there's certain things that feel like it's out of your control and, you know, how you feel, whether it's a situation at home, whatever the hell it is. But I'm here to talk about what you can do. And that is you got the power. It's the greatest power in the world. You got the power to make a choice of who you are, how you behave every day. That's what I'm here for. That's all I'm here for. Nothing else. I'm here to say, hey, if you guys start to decide to do something that a while ago you started you stop doing. Care about who you are. Take ownership over who you are. Take responsibility over who you are. Care every day you walk in this school how you're going to act, how you're going to represent yourself, how you're going to behave. If you do that, that's all I'm asking you to do. If you start doing that, you're going to get put on a list with your teachers that you improved in those areas with your behavior. And I'm going to come back here. At the end of this semester, I'm going to drop off 200 tickets to a Yankee game, to a Mets game, to a Knicks game, to a Nets game, whatever it is, and I'm going to supply the buses. And if you're on that list, you're going to go to a game. All right? Because I, I just want you to have a little reason to care about who the hell you are. Well put, Teddy Atlas, a, a, a great guy, a great friend. We appreciate you, man. And with Raider ties, let's don't forget that. When you come to Vegas, you're coming to see your Raiders, right? There you go. I was just, yeah, yeah. my son, of course, right. the assistant director of yep. scouting with the Las Vegas Raiders. And, um, you know, I was just out there a couple of weeks ago with my family to see my son, see my grandson, see my daughter-in-law. Uh, it was great. We were there for a week. It wasn't long enough, but he's coming here Saturday. You know, the NFL, they get one vacation. That's all, baby. I know. One vacation. Before training camp. That's it. Yep. In the NFL. Yeah. And he's coming home next, he's coming home Saturday for three weeks. We're so happy he's going to be with us, with his son, with his wife. Um, we're going to get out there. We're probably going to, well, it's looking like we're going to be out there for the first game. Great. Good. Okay. We'll look forward to seeing you, man. That's, that's fantastic. All right, Teddy. Appreciate the time as always, my man. Excellent stuff. And check out the fight with Teddy Atlas, the podcast. Uh, it, it's fantastic. Uh, and who, I know you had Charlo Munguia. You talked about Inouye, the Wilder Fury press conference. Uh, what do you got coming up real quick? Yeah, you, listen, that's what we did. We covered everything that was on uh, in boxing this past weekend. Everything. What you just said and more. We covered it all. Mm-hmm. But what we got coming out tomorrow is an interview with the new 
UFC champion, the new UFC flyweight champion, the first Mexican-born MMA champion ever, Brandon Marino. And it's a great interview. It's 45 minutes long. It's coming out tomorrow. And I think that if you're, first of all, if you're a UFC fan, you're going to love it. And if you're a fight fan, period, I think you're going to love his story. I call him the, the Mexican Rocky <laughs> because he had that kind of story. And, and he made it. When, when it looked like he couldn't make it, he just kept going, kept going, and he made it. So I, th- I think people will enjoy it. Excellent stuff, Teddy. All right, brother. Appreciate the time as always, man. Be good and look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. All right. Nice talking to you. There he is, Teddy Atlas. Uh, love him to death. International Boxing Hall of Famer, the trainer. I think he's had 20-plus years on ESPN. He is sorely missed on that ESPN broadcast because, obviously, they have redone things with the talent. And, yes, you know, we love Tim Bradley, Andre Ward, but, uh, you know, it, the missing piece is Teddy Atlas telling it like it is. And that's what we love. We love having these guys on the show that tell it like it is. We had Steve Sachs yesterday, Teddy Atlas today, and uh, not only the, the face of boxing – but the charitable aspect, too, and I always love to talk to him about that, about his father, Dr. Theodore Atlas, and that foundation. So just a great person. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because how that uh, interview went completely full circle. We found out right from the start, I've got too much on my plate to worry about family feud. I don't want to be on it. <laughs> and then he took it all around. Right. And I don't know about you, but when he was talking about guys that stayed too long, and, and you, you know, you don't want to tell a guy when to hang it up or whatever, but I started thinking of other sports. And as, as a youngster and being such a big Willie Mays fan, I'll never forget that one picture of him begging for the call at home when he's yeah. there with his and, and it's like it's so sad that a lot of younger people in that and well older now but younger back when it first came out obviously that a lot of people think that was Willie Mays and for me he was still the most exciting most iconic player in the game of baseball in the history of the game so you know sometimes you just hope that that's not the memory when he mentioned you know Muhammad Ali against Larry Holmes I remember that fight where Holmes was basically looking at the ref going please stop this fight I don't want to hit him anymore so you know you hope that that's not how guys go out but Unfortunately, sometimes it is. Right. All right, we come back. Scott Spritzer waiting in the wings. He's going to join us. We talk NBA, VGK, and a whole lot more coming your way right here on this Wednesday edition of T.C. Martin Show. Now, more from your favorite sports radio physician. Wow, that's the best news I heard in a dog's age. The Dr. T.C. Martin. Man, it is getting good right now, huh? We're in semifinals in the NHL playoffs. Semifinals, basically, Eastern and Western Conference finals in the NBA. And last night, we had ourselves a crazy game in game number two between the Phoenix Suns and the LA Clippers last night. And uh, tonight, uh, we'll get ready for the Bucks and, and the Hawks. And Scott Spritzer is in the house. Join us, Doc Sports. What's going on, my man? How you guys doing, man? Just uh, watching a little baseball, this yeah. Shohei Otani battle on the mound and get ready for tonight's NBA. There you go. All right, Scott, let's relive what happened last night with the Suns and the Clippers game last night. This game was close throughout, low-scoring game. Phoenix pretty much in control to a certain degree. We didn't see the Clippers really you know, bolt out to a big lead or anything like that. This game was nip and tuck, which is very rare for a lot of these NBA games. And then uh, I thought Phoenix, you know, they were going to win this game going away. And then all of a sudden, the Clippers make a little run there in the end, in, in the final minute of the game. And uh, so, uh, lo and behold, here come the Clippers, and Paul George comes up big. George, jumper, got it! 
throws another back-to-back huge buckets. So Paul George comes up with a couple big jumpers and actually gave the Clippers a lead. And you thought, okay, you know, Phoenix is going to get the ball back here. And the Clippers led 103-102. And then Phoenix had the ball. What'd they do with it? Booker looking to get free. Into the hands of Booker. Booker against Beverly. Finds Crowder. Bridges for three. Won't go. Ball knocked out. And it's still Sun's ball with eight-tenths of a second remaining. Okay, so that was uh, uh, the ill-advised jumper. Before that, you had Paul George going to the free-throw line to ice the game when uh, they could have been up by three, and uh, this happened. Paul George at the free-throw line. A chance to get it back and advance it. They throw it in the backcourt to George. And Bridges fouls Paul George, who just hit two big free-throws, but he has missed three tonight. Huge free throws here for Paul George. Missed another, and they call timeout. So at that point in time, Phoenix is going to get one more opportunity to win this game. Paul George could have iced or at least put him up by three, where Phoenix would have needed a three to tie the game and send it into overtime. But uh, instead, now Phoenix has the ball with less than a second to go, and we get this. Crowder looking, throws it, alley oh! The alley-oop from Jay Crowder to DeAndre Ayton and the Phoenix Suns get an impractical, uh, impractical victory there. Uh, and now they lead the series two games to none. Scott, I don't know what side you were on in that game, but, uh, man, that was uh, some pretty intense watching in the final few minutes. I think the thing that bothered me the most, I, I had the Clippers plus five, so I cashed the ticket. But the thing that really bothered me is it took 30 minutes to play the final 30 seconds. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating. And I'm sitting there last night, you know, trying to get that Clippers play home. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I was texting, actually, a couple of other betters who weren't involved with the NBA game. They were involved with the NHL game, maybe some baseball. And I'm like, I'm, like, I'm sitting there texting them going, I am still watching the last 30 seconds. 25 minutes later, I was still watching the last two seconds. There were something like five or six reviews. Even Jeff Van Gundy said this rule has got to change. You can't have this in the final 25 seconds of a playoff game, review after review. But anyway, cast the ticket with the Clippers, and I'll tell you why I was on them. If you looked at game one, you know, the Clippers lost 120 to 114. Uh, they'll be, they were without, obviously, Kawhi Leonard again. Um, but I'll tell you what, Phoenix in game one played about as well as can be expected, yet they couldn't separate from L.A. They were tied at 93 early in the fourth quarter of game one. The Suns couldn't miss from the field. They couldn't miss from the free throw line. They dominated the paint. They finished with 31 assists and only seven turnovers in game one. And again, the Clippers had their chances before losing by six. So I'm looking at everything the Suns did right. They couldn't have played any better in game one, and they still won by only six points. That line comes out generally five, five and a half, came down a little bit as it got closer to game time. But I just expected the Clippers, even without Kawhi, to be able to make the adjustments that Ty Lue has been able to make all postseason off a loss and uh, gives the, the Suns all they can handle. And if not for just maybe the best pinpoint pass with a second to go in the game for that dunk, an incredible play call, uh, just a smart play call all around. Players, coaches, everybody did their job for the Suns, and they get that win almost at the buzzer. We had to wait another, what, 10 minutes for a review of that. You know, it was crazy to see where the clock 
was and see how much time the Clippers had left. But, yeah, that's why I was on the Clippers. And, again, it was a situation where the Suns couldn't have played any better in game one, yet they had to eke out a six-point win, so he took the points last night. Totally agree with you, Scott, with that, with that handicapping, no doubt about it, with you on, on the underdog last night. And to your point, so at the hockey game last night, and, and I'm coming back, and so leaving T-Mobile Arena, and you know where I live, I mean, going towards Henderson, I, I, I got the whole thing in the car. Uh, I got like, you know, with traffic and everything, I got about a 25 minute drive. I was able to listen to the last minute and a half, and that's how long it took. So, to your point, exactly. It was crazy listening on the radio. Yeah, it's, it's just a mess. I mean, they've got to change the rules when it comes to all these reviews. I mean, listen, I know it's all about getting it right, but come on, a half hour to play a minute? You know, it's just ridiculous. So, I cannot wait until they hopefully will change the rules to where there's a certain amount of reviews that can be made or maybe review the kind of plays that are being made. I mean, why in the world did it take, what it take, TC, seven, eight minutes probably oh, yeah. to decide how much time was left yes. on the clock after that game-winning dunk? You really need to look for seven or eight minutes <laughs> to see there were .6 seconds left when he slammed it through the net. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to watch the NBA because of stuff like that. Uh, but, again, it's not hard to watch when you end up cashing the ticket, which is what we did. Well, I guess so there's a bright side to it. You have plenty of time for your in-game wagering to decide what decisions you want to make <laughs> since, since there's reviews every play. But if you are the Clippers now after a loss like that, is it demoralizing? Or do you go, okay, well, you know what? We lost the game, but uh, we get Kawhi back. We're not in that bad a situation here. We, there's no reason we can't come back and win this thing. Well, they've been in this situation before, this playoffs, and, and they're not going to get Kawhi back. You know, he's going to be out for a little while. It looks like Chris Paul is going to probably play for uh, Phoenix as he's been upgraded to probable. But, you know, again, you've just taken on the Phoenix Suns without your best player. You've played two games that you could have won. You've got to make a couple of maybe adjustments to the whole ball of wax here, and you get right back in the, in the playoffs, or right back in the series, I should say. So, I don't think there's any panic at all. Remember, they lost the first two games at home to the Dallas Mavericks. It's like the Clippers, like, uh, they don't really wake up until they're almost, you know, in a position where they're virtually out of a series. If you look at expected wins, which is something I like to look at when it comes down to this many teams left in the postseason, but it's basically how many games, given how many the team has played, would you normally expect a team with an efficiency differential that they have in the postseason to win? Well, the Clippers are 9.9, Phoenix is 9.4. Clippers have played a couple of more games so far, but still they've been expected to win almost 10, 9.9 of their games that they played thus far. They've only won eight. So it's not like this team is playing a horrible brand of basketball to be down 0-2. The one thing they've got to shore up, guys, man, the defense. I mean, if you look at the last two weeks, points allowed per 100 possessions played, the Clippers are by far the worst at 120.4. Uh, points allowed per 100 possessions played. Phoenix has given up 110, 10 points fewer. So the Clippers have got to make those adjustments on the defensive end of the court. But again, they've proven in each series thus far that they've been able to do it. And the thing about it is, you know, we got these four teams that are here, and not everybody expected us to be here with Atlanta, Milwaukee, and the Clippers and Phoenix. We don't have much defense with any of these teams. Milwaukee definitely isn't a very good uh, defensive team. We saw that with the Nets. That's probably the reason why they got eliminated last round as well, too. So it's funny. We usually see good defensive teams usually in, in, in these conference finals. We don't have that this year. Well, I, I, I understand, but at the same time, I think Milwaukee is not getting – credit for the defense they played thus far. They're the best team of, 
they got the best defensive efficiency record of all the NBA teams that made the playoffs and have obviously played a game uh, at 105, their defensive efficiency. Okay. If you look at what they've done the last two weeks, I just told you like Phoenix is 110.5, their points allowed for 100 possessions played. Phoenix 110.5. Uh, you've got the Clippers at 120.4, Atlanta 108.6, Utah 130. Guess what? Milwaukee's 102.8. They're eight points better on the defensive end of the floor for 100 possessions the last two weeks than the Phoenix Suns, who seem to be beating everybody handily, you know, not handily by large point spreads, but winning these basketball games. So they have the best point differential the last two weeks, or second best, I should say, of all the teams of the final eight and now the final four in points allowed per 100 possessions and points scored. Uh, here's something interesting, guys, about Milwaukee and Atlanta, by the way. If you take that points differential the last two weeks, points per 100 possessions, Phoenix is 11.4. They're the best overall when you throw in the offense in the mix. Milwaukee's number two at 7.2. Do you realize that the Atlanta Hawks are a negative one? Only team of the final four that has a negative point differential in points scored to points allowed per 100 possessions, and if you break down, for instance, Milwaukee's played 11 postseason games, Atlanta's played 12 postseason games, if you break it down, the metric, unexpected wins over an 82-game season of the games these two teams have played in the playoffs, Milwaukee would be a 55-game winner, 55 wins, 27 losses, Atlanta, 45 wins, 37 losses, again, by far the worst of the teams that are left, so the metrics say that Milwaukee wins going away as far as this series is concerned. Now they've got to shoot better than they were from the deep perimeter in the first few games of the postseason. If they can get that on track, uh, then they probably win this series, I would say, yeah. in six games. That's Professor Scott Spicer. I feel like I'm in an algebra class or, or geometry or something like that. That's great, great stuff, Scott. Yeah, I, I, I just saw <laughs> when he said 102.8, I thought that was maybe the radio station they were on or something. But, uh, but yeah, but but I guess if defense wins championships and they're the best defensive team, uh, maybe you do take a flyer on them right now. So, But, uh, yeah, so, so some definitely interesting stats there. S- Milwaukee. I don't did- always like to get into metrics, but at this right. point, where there's four teams left, guys, that's when this really this stuff really adds up for me. That's when I really start to like to use it because you've got four teams that have been good enough to all get where they are and all at the same time have played, you know, 11, 12, 13 games at this point. And then you can really use what they've done in their series thus far to kind of gauge what might happen in the upcoming series. So it gets to this point of the postseason every year when all these newfangled metrics started coming out a decade ago. That's when I like to use them. You know me, TC, Frank, from all these years we've known each other, done radio shows. I'm not a big newfangled metrics guy during the course of the regular season. It's all situational. But at this point, I really do jump in with the metrics. No, and you've adapted. I mean, a lot, some handicappers don't adapt with the times. And, and, and again, if you have that information, it's just like the analytics that we look at in baseball, that sort of thing. I mean, use it to your advantage. You can still have the old school approach. And again, think about you know the, the mental side of it, the emotional side of it, and again, you know the matchups. But uh, again, if there's numbers out there, and especially if they support that, and again, I mean, you're not just a numbers guy. I mean, you're going to see if the numbers support you know, what your, what your eyes are seeing as well, too. And, and to me, that's just smart handicapping. So, no, kudos to you, my friend. Yeah, and, and, well, to, me, it. and to me, it's just uh, it's being smart enough to 
add a tool to your toolbox. Yes. You didn't take the metrics yeah. and throw away the old toolbox. It's just another device that you can use, and that's what I think is the key to being successful with it. Right. Well, that's and what I try to do is I'll still look at it from the standpoint that I do all season in the postseason, especially because postseason handicapping is obviously different than regular season. But I'll look and I'll see you know, old school capping, and then I'll use the metrics after that. And, you know, the thing I think that surprised me the most was the difference in expected wins over 82 games based on the games played so far in the postseason. And when I saw Milwaukee was 10 games better in that metric than Atlanta, I have to admit I was a little surprised. And I felt Milwaukee's the better team. I mean, listen, the Atlanta Hawks were fortunate enough to play the poster team for offensive ineptitude when they played the New York Knicks, right? So <laughs> even though Milwaukee had their problems early on in this playoff series shooting the three-pointer, they're still better than the New York Knicks. Now, you throw all those numbers into the mix, you use old-school handicapping, you mix them together, and you're still not shocked when you come up on the wrong end of things and the Hawks win in seven. So, you know, there's little things that are going to happen along the way. The reason I think that besides all those crazy metrics and numbers and all that kind of stuff that does help out this time of year, the reason I think the Bucks get the job done is Trey Young is finally going to have to play at both ends of the floor every right. night with Drew Holiday out there a point for the Bucks. I think that's a big deal. So it's going to be interesting to see how Trey Young adjusts and plays against Drew Holiday throughout the series. And the thing about it is, it's not like Atlanta has a plan B. I mean, they can win if Trey Young is it goes for 26 to 32 points or something like that. If he doesn't, and he has a subpar shooting game, they really don't have that next go-to guy. Who is that? Clint Capella? I mean, really. I mean, they, they, really they really don't have that option. So, and, uh, so, so, let's, so you're saying that Atlanta wins if Trey hits his trays. There you go. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. All right. So this uh, line has jumped up to, to eight. I'm seeing it some places, uh, Scott, here in Milwaukee tonight. It is game one. Talk a little bit about the Hawks and the Bucks. The Bucks finally, it seems like maybe they've gotten over the hump. They've had some disappointments. They were talking about maybe getting rid of their coach here. Uh, you know, Giannis is healthy doing his thing. But like you said, uh, Drew Holiday, they've got other pieces. Chris Middleton, I love him as well, too. And we know Milwaukee loves to fire up the threes as well, too. I mean, they could destroy you on any given night if they are hitting a good percentage of their threes. If they're not, then, you know, we're going to have ourselves a series here. So how do you handicap game one? Yeah, and that's a big part of it. I mean, Milwaukee wasn't exactly being defended outstandingly by their opponent when they couldn't make their three-pointers, you know. But I think this is a spot where, you know, Atlanta really will miss DeAndre Hunter. Bogdanovich is a little banged up. He hasn't been as good late in that series, that last series, as he was earlier in the playoffs. That hurts. Uh, maybe, maybe P.J. Tucker can step up a little bit for the Hawks because I'm still concerned if I'm a Hawks fan or better uh, that Trey Young with his defensive deficiencies is going to cost this team throughout the course of the series. As far as tonight, I like the Bucks. I did lay the points. It got as high as eight and a half. Uh, you could have laid as low as seven yesterday afternoon, I believe it was, but it has been as high as eight and a half. Uh, as far as what Mike Budenholzer has done as the head coach of this team, they've been a home jock 115 times under Budenholzer. 115 times they've been home jock. They've covered 58% of those games. And in those 150 ga- 115 games, they've scored 120 points per game and allowed 108. It's a team that gets the job done, man, when it comes to being home chalk. And I know it's a big price, but for all those metrics, 
combined with the fact that teams don't always do real well when they're off a seven-game series. I just had to go with Milwaukee, and I didn't have to lay eight and a half. I did have to lay eight, though, in this game. And listen, the Hawks have covered six of the last 24 as a road dog in that six-and-a-half to 12-point line range. So, And they lose those games, by the way, by an average of 16 points per game. So jumped on Milwaukee, laid the eight. All right, got to get going, Scott. But real quick, uh, tomorrow night, VGK in an elimination situation. Uh, they're a road favorite. Give us some quick thoughts. Real quick thoughts. I, I hope Robin Leonard's a net. Uh, his third straight postseason where Mark Andre Fleury has left something to be desired, desired between the pipes and playoffs action. Uh, maybe Stevenson being his second game, shaking off some rust, can work some life into that line. Uh, Patch ready a goal and two assists in the series. Mark Stone is yet to score a point. I'm going to root the heck for root the heck out of VGK. I don't know that they're going to get it done. I'm probably not going to bet the game. I'll say VGK wins three to two. VGK deserved to be a favorite here. I mean, they've been a pretty large favorite in you know all these games. Even on the road, it was uh, minus one sixty. You know. Yeah, only because the, uh, they're going to draw the majority of the bets. Yep, That's yep. it. As far as power ratings at this point, they don't deserve it. But because they're going to draw those bets, the books had to make them the favorite of a buck forty or so. Value with the Canadians, no doubt about it. All right, Scott. Appreciate you. You can check him out at DocSports.com for Scott's plays. Go check him out. He's on it. NBA, Major League Baseball, the NHL, it doesn't matter. Even Euro 2020, I'm sure. I passed at ATC, but I'm involved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You and me both. We when we get to the uh, the knockout stage, the advance, that's when we get serious about this stuff, man. So there we go. Absolutely. All right, brother. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate you. Take care, guys. All right, there he is, Scott Spritzer. All right, want to thank Teddy Atlas for joining us. Tim Bradley, uh, the former uh, combo, the trainer fighter, they both joined us today, and both on the commentating side now as well too. And of course, uh, you know, we also had who else did we have today? You know, Scott Spritzer. Scott Spritzer. Jeez, it's one of those days, man. All right, miss any part of the show? Go to the website tcmartshow.com. VGK talk more tomorrow, ballpark. Yeah, and basically what it sounds like to me you're saying is in that particular series, the price hasn't been right for the VGK. This is true. <laughs>